Welcome to another episode of How Did We Get Queer, a podcast from The Pigeon. My name is Isaac, and I'm Jack McPhee's closeted boyfriend, and I am one of your co-hosts. Hi, and I'm one of the kids in the hall, Thomas O'Donnell, your other co-host. This is the first part of a two-part episode about queer representation in Canadian media. In this first part, we will be talking about some of our favorite moments in queer film and TV, as well as get into some of our own thoughts and opinions about queer representation. So right off the bat, we are not experts on this. We're just two guys sharing some thoughts and opinions on queer representation. Tune into the next episode if you want to hear some real experts with more nuanced opinions and probably better takes than us. Yes, so uh, so get ready for some uh, perhaps not thoroughly thought out takes, um, but we're just, you know, speaking speaking from the heart here. Thomas, what is the first example of queer representation that you remember seeing on screen? So I remember when I was like pretty young, like I was probably about nine or ten, I saw the movie Rent based on the musical of Rent. I would watch it constantly, all the time. I know all the words to all of the songs. Um, I know all of the like lines that they say. I had no real understanding of what it was about um, for a pretty long time. And I actually rewatched it sort of recently, like in the past month. And I hadn't, I had been, I've, I've listened to the soundtrack like frequently. That's, that's embarrassing. First of the many embarrassing things I will say. Um, but I haven't actually like watched the movie in a really long time. And like sitting down to watch it, I realized that it just kind of like completely shattered my little nine year old brain. And then my brain like sort of restructured itself around the movie Rent. So like there is there was so much about it that I was just like oh like I don't know how to describe it but I think that this movie is just like my entire identity is <laughs> the movie Rent like I remember so vividly like watching it this time and seeing Mark the like guy who's always carrying around the camera I remember so vividly watching it and being like oh my god I want to be Mark I lo- I love his like short little haircut and like that little the <laughs> the sweater he wears with the, the red sweater with the blue line on it. Um, but when I was nine, I didn't really have the words to describe that, and I think I just um, sort of took that emotion out by literally constantly watching the movie Rent all the time. Nice, yeah. I I'm impressed that you watched it at nine. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. I think I don't think I watched Rent until like I was in my sort of like mid-teens. I was in a uh, vocal jazz choir in high school, and we did a Rent medley for one of our <laughs> concerts. Um, and that was the first time I saw the movie. Uh, but I um, I know this is different from like what you're describing, but I totally had like a crush on Mark. I think the first time I watched it as like a little wannabe journalist, I was like, yeah, you go with your little camera thing <laughs> i don't think i don't think i even understood he was a journalist i thought he just like owned a camera <laughs> and i was like that's so cool wow <laughs> i mean is he a journalist or just like a filmmaker guy i well, don't know he like he's like yeah i can i t- let me tell you i can probably recite the rent wikia all about mark because there's that time where sarah silverman is his boss so he must work as a journalist oh right okay When's the first time you saw queer representation? Well, I think I had kind of like maybe a weird experience with this because I grew up without a television. Um, so I didn't watch a lot of like TV and shows and I felt like very out of 
touch with pop culture as a young person. Um, but I also grew up with a gay dad. And so like I simultaneously was not exposed to a lot of media, but I was also exposed to like a lot of queer films and stuff from a young age. Uh, like I remember watching Milk and the Kids Are All Right with my dad when they came out when I was a teenager. I think they came out in like around 2008. But if I'm thinking about like representations in shows that I watched sort of, I guess, more like just casually as a young person, um, like when I when I got a laptop and I began like watching stuff online uh, on my own, I think some of the first examples uh, I remember was like watching uh, Dawson's Creek. I like loved Dawson's Creek. I think a friend of mine introduced me to it. And I was like, this show is just like great i don't know why like in hindsight it, it i don't know what drew me to it but um there was the character of yeah jack mcphee on dawson's creek who's like one of dawson's friends and he came out in a 2000 no not 2009 oh my goodness he came out in a uh 1999 episode um and then i think he had like the first primetime gay kiss on american tv in the year 2000 so i remember thinking that was like that was like pretty cool uh, I don't know if I like necessarily like was like, wow, this character like totally speaks to me or like represents me or whatever. But I was more just like, all right, like you're cute. Nice. Um, and then another early example I remember is watching uh, My So-Called Life, which was a show that was only on for one season in 1994 and 1995. But it starred Claire Danes and it was just kind of like a high school coming of age kind of show. And I loved the show when I watched it. I think I was like 12 or 13. But I don't actually recall thinking like much about the gay character, like Ricky Vasquez. But I more like loved Claire Danes and was like obsessed with Claire Danes in the show. And like, I remember just feeling like, like I remember telling people that she was like, my straight crush was like on Claire Danes in the show. I think her name was like Angela Chase. And I don't know what it was about that, but I feel like there's something like kind of queer about my like, young gay infatuation with Claire Danes as Angela Chase. And like in particular, I remember I loved her voice. Like she narrated the show and I was like, wow, you have like this beautiful, smooth voice. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, those are kind of my, I guess, early examples of queer representation. I don't know that I have seen either um, My So-Called Life or... Um... Dawson's Creek. Yes, but a sort of, okay, if I'm going like a tangential connection, I'm really reaching on this one. The first time I, like, the first representation I remember seeing and actually like reflecting on it being representation is, okay, are you ready for this yes. like segue nonsense? This IMBD segue nonsense? Pacey on Dawson's Creek is played by um, Joshua Jackson. Yes, who's Canadian. Yes, who is on a show called Fringe, which is filmed in Vancouver. And there's an episode of Fringe. Fringe is a, uh, so, kind of like the X-Files, where there's like supernatural science fiction-y things happening like in our real world. So one of the episodes, the main uh, character, Olivia, like she's sort of like mentally connected with a guy who can control other people's emotions by the way he feels. Anyway, in the episode of the show that was on like in 2009 uh, that I watched as like a tween to teenager, there's an episode where, you know, she's like mentally connected to this guy. So she goes into a strip club and she's, oh, I think the story, she like starts like making out with a dancer who's working there. And I think that was the first time that I registered. I was like, oh, this is 
Like, this is a not straight thing that I am watching in this moment right now. Compared to Rent, where I was like, all these people, they're dancing and singing. And so, like, did you, um, did you, like, go through a period where you were sort of, like, actively seeking out queer content? Or was it just sort of, like, if you came across it, like, cool? I think this is probably one of my, like, biggest deficits just in my life, is I... I don't necessarily super op- super often go out looking for queer content. I think this is another kind of like almost embarrassing thing. But I, I have a, I don't know if it's a bad habit. I would maybe call it a good habit of like whatever I'm, whatever I'm watching, I just make that thing gay. This is literally so embarrassing. I can't believe that this quote is going to live on the internet forever. So I was watching the Harry Potter movies recently. And I was watching it and I was overwhelmed by like, I was like, oh, just to me watching this, I feel like Harry and Ron are totally gay for each other. Just the way that they're acting, they're specifically kind of like angst. I was like, I feel like I'm reading this as like a, a very gay angst. And then the rest of that, I don't know what movie I started thinking about that in, but then the rest of the, the rest of the movies, the rest of the like marathon we were doing, I was like, oh, well, this situation is clearly happening because Harry Potter and Ron Weasley are in love. Yes. Yeah. Lavender Brown. She's just, she's just a beard, you know, um, uh, Hermione, sorry to say, is also just a beard eventually after the epilogue. Of course. Uh, Was there actually any like explicitly out like gay or queer character in Harry Potter or is that, or is that like before the time when every movie had like a gay character? I don't think that there are any gay characters in the movies. I also didn't really read the books, but I know that there was like afterwards, she who shall not be named said that Dumbledore is gay. Oh, right. But that's just silly. That's not real. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. This is not the same thing, but I, I get what you mean about like queering pop culture stuff. Yeah, when I was around, I guess, 14, 13, I don't know, a, a, a teen, a young teen, um, I would like rewrite Sofiane Stevens' lyrics to make them gay, um, which I feel like I'm seeing people do now on like TikTok. And I'm like, hey, I was like 10 years ahead of this trend. I think like, unlike you, I totally actively sought out queer stuff as a uh, a young person. I don't really know why. It just like, yeah, I remember very clearly like going to bed at night and like on my phone kind of like surreptitiously, not that I had a reason to like do it in secret, but like I'd like watch gay stuff on my phone. And like the the main example I remember is like the show called uh Queer as Folk, which um is like often sort of cited in in as like an important show in the history of queer representation. Um the original British series of the show ran for uh, one season in 1999, and then there was an American remake made that ran from from 2000 to 2005, and it followed a uh, group of gay friends living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, and it was sort of lauded or celebrated for like addressing a number of issues, uh, either for like the first time on TV or like in just like a really kind of significant way on television. So like homophobic violence, queer parenting. HIV AIDS and then it was also like really well known for its explicit uh depictions of sex which was like maybe why I was like so into watching it as <laughs> as a teenager um <laughs> I, I think they actually had like the first gay sex scene on American TV on that show 
I mean, of course, lately they've like years later, they've now been critiqued for their lack of representation. Uh, it was mainly like featuring the lives of very beautiful cis white men. Um, but that was like kind of a significant show for me as a, as a young person, I think. I want to talk with you now about, uh, about a show that I think was like significant for both of us. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. Is it um, One Girl, Five Gays? Yeah. One Girl, Five Gays. Yeah. What is What was One Girl, Five Gays? A life-changing television experience um, where the title really says it all. It was a panel show with one girl, woman moderator, and five gay men discussing. Let me see if I can do. Let me see if I can. I'll try to do my impression of the way they say it. 20 questions about love and sex. There was sort of like a rotating cast of, you know, I guess men from Toronto, and they would sort of discuss all matter of questions. So some of the things could be, oh, one of them that I remember so vividly is like, I think if they would do once episode, it would be like, talk about the person to your left, like compliment them. And then they would just like, turn to whoever's on their left and like say something nice about them. Or, you know, talking more about like relationships, obviously talking about sex, like what are your turn-ons and turn-offs. And they would get into like a wide range of topics, like talking about their, you know, their relationship with their family, sort of just their day-to-day lives. And I loved it so much. My sister and I used to watch it. So in our house, there's the upstairs TV and then there's the downstairs TV. And when my parents would go out, my sister and I would go downstairs, we'd go to the downstairs TV, and we would like, we would plant a show, sort of like, let's say something on, I don't know, like PBS or whatever. And then we would then start watching One Girl, Five Gays, and we'd be really strategic about using the last button whenever my parents would come home, and they'd have to take the time to come downstairs. And it's not, I, it's important I say, it's not that my parents would didn't want us watching a show about... Um, gay people, it's some of the things that they describe on the show are quite explicit. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I think really kind of amazing for how explicit they were and like how sort of uh, in depth they got into some of these conversations. For me, it was almost like, uh, like the sex ed that I didn't actually receive in like high school. Like I was watching around the same time as watching, I, I was sort of obsessed with Queer as Folk and I would uh, like binge these episodes of One Girl, Five Gays. And it was like just so, I don't know, incredible for me at that age to see people just like talking about this stuff so casually. And like, I really can't think of like another show since then that has kind of been that. So bold. Yeah, very, very bold. I mean, obviously like there were some problematic things too, um, but yeah, very, very bold. So other than like One Girl, Five Gays uh, and your sort of make-believe Harry and Ron um, <laughs> romance, do you have any, uh, what, what are like your favorite instances of queer representation in either like film or, or television? This is another thing that I am so bad about. I feel like I have such a limited viewing of Canadian cinema. Hmm. I think like there's a lot, you know, that I can access on the internet now, but especially like as a youth, you know, the Nanaimo Galaxy Theater didn't really show a lot of um, Canadian films. So I think a lot of my experience is from television. I think this is a more, what's the word for when something is now? Current? Yeah, this is a more current um, example, but I really love Letterkenny. Letterkenny is a show set in uh, Letterkenny, Ontario, made up 
small town and it's all about you know the lives of these rural small town people and it's just very i feel like queer is a good way to describe it a very like umbrella term because i think something i think about a lot in terms of canadian media there are small town shows you know written for small town people uh, or written by small town people and then there are sm- shows about small towns that are clearly written uh, by people from Toronto. So I would say Shit's Creek is a show about a small town written by someone from Toronto. Because I think something that I love, something that's very specific about small town living is how, like, obviously people everywhere are very unique, but I feel like you get very specific characters and people in small towns. And I think that Letterkenny really um, describes that really well. And I think the biggest thing is, like, all of the queer characters in Letterkenny, they just, that's, that's just their lives. Like, that's just how they live. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's no sort of like big reveal. It's just sort of, this. just like, it just comes up in conversation. It just like comes up in the plot of the story. Right. Well, it's, it's funny because like you, we were sort of talking about this before. And when you brought up Letterkenny, I was like, what? Like there's queerness in that show? Cause I've seen a few seasons of it and like, I wouldn't have really thought of it as a queer show, but like, so what, what are the kind of queer characters that stand out for you? I think like, I mean, probably one of the main characters is, um, Katie, uh, who is, uh, the main guy's brother. I should have learned his name. Um, so Katie is sort of in a polyamorous relationship. And I think there are sort of discussions later on about her, um, bisexuality, there's also uh, one of the skids, um, Roland, is gay. That one is sort of more brought up as like a thing that they talk about. There's the uh, gay hockey players who like get married uh, on the show. And yeah, there's never any sort of like this episode we're discussing one character who is coming out. Okay, I guess I, I haven't watched far enough to see that that uh, the gay marriage thing because obviously I would I would remember that as being pretty gay. Yes, I think it was in the I think it was in one of the later seasons. Okay, but yeah, the 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 member of the Skids guy, what's Roland? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one because I feel like that whole like kind of there's because there's three guys, right? And I feel like that their whole kind of like relationship is kind of queer in a sense. Like there's this kind of like intimacy and like between all three of them that is really interesting for me like when it comes to like favorite instances of representation um i like as i said i like really sought out queer stuff and i was like a very kind of you know geeky nerdy uh you know teenager i think where i was like looking up for like maybe not geeky and nerdy but maybe more just like a little bit pretentious where i was like looking out like for canadian independent cinema and mm. stuff like that which must have made me like a joy to to be around but uh i <laughs> i loved um the xavier dolan films when they first came out have you heard of xavier dolan i think i've seen him on like important canadian arts people you should know <laughs> right yeah or i probably probably you know how cbc had their su- super queeros yes big article i think it was probably on that yeah 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 he like and like whenever they do like alphabetized lists he, he's always like the x you know <laughs> yes um yeah he's a he's a queer filmmaker from quebec who released his first film uh called j'ai tué ma mère which means 
uh, I Killed My Mother, uh, which is not about someone killing their mother. Um, <laughs> he released it in 2009 when he was like very young. I think he was like 19 when it came out. And he he writes, stars, and directs the film. And he does that with a lot of his, his films. He's sort of this like, you know, wunderkind filmmaker from Quebec. Um, but the, his first movie, J'ai Tué Mamere, is about um, uh, the complicated relationship between a young queer man and his mom. Um, and it's just like really beautifully well done. Um, and even though like, so I, I was raised by a single mom as well. And my relationship with my mom is like not nearly as screwed up as the one depicted in this film. Um, it is, I love my mom very much. We do not have like a complicated relationship at all, but still like it, it kind of resonated with me. I think as a teenager, seeing this, like other, this movie about another gay kid being raised by a single mom. And then all of his films are like, I quite enjoy them even though i think there's sort of the consensus that like as he makes more because he's like very prolific but as he makes more films i think the quality kind of goes downhill sorry please do not yes, Xavier Dolan. <laughs> just you know you can just look at the the um rotten tomatoes for you know uh for proof and then the other film or short film that I want to bring up is like also kind of like a niche, maybe pretentious one, but it's this short film by Winnipeg filmmaker. I'm from Winnipeg. So of course I have to bring up a Winnipeg filmmaker. Uh, his name is Noam Gonick and he has a short film called 1919 that was released in the nineties at some point. It was his first short film, I think. And 1919 is a reference to the 1919 Winnipeg general strike which is a super important moment in our city's history. And it's a, a really fascinating short film. It's all in like black and white. And it, it's, a, it's a historically revisionist um, depiction of the Winnipeg general strike as seen through the window of a uh, gay Chinese-owned uh, barbershop and bathhouse, um, which sounds sort of weird and it, like is quite weird. But it's just like a fascinating kind of like queering of history and i remember when i watched it a few years ago i was like wow this is like this is like a really good example of like queer cinema um and it was just like to sort of use queerness to make us rethink history or like think about history in a different way yeah it's really cool and i think you can find it on like vimeo or, or something like that it was also selected by moma as one of the best gay and lesbian films from the last 15 years so on this side, your opinion is backed up by data of MoMA selected it as being very yeah. good. So therefore, it is <laughs> yes. very good. <laughs> yes, obviously, obviously. So have we arrived at our hot take section? I think so. Oh, I feel like I feel like I have I have a duty to talk about something that's very important to me. But I don't know that it I don't know that it fits well into hot takes or favorite instances of representation. So I'm taking command of the podcast to talk about something that is, it is a national, it's actually my national duty to talk about this. And clearly I have to steer the conversation towards Degrassi, um, which I think is, you know, a very Canadian. And I think anytime you Google um, like LGBTQ representation in Canadian media, it talks about Degrassi. So I'm going to take that on. Isaac, I guess, what's your engagement with Degrassi? Well, I, because I did not grow up with the television, uh, although that, okay, this is, that's a lame excuse. I have to stop using that excuse because obviously I still watch TV on my computer when I got one. Um, <laughs> but I didn't watch Degrassi. Like, well, the only time I watched Degrassi was in uh, my junior high health class. We watched like Degrassi junior high as part of like our health class curriculum, which is kind of odd. But other than that, like I've never watched 
Degrassi, which is maybe bad. So you have you have to yeah you have to steer the ship here. I would call myself lucky if I had not seen Degrassi. So Degrassi, for those for those who are unaware, I don't know who would be, but you might know it as the show that Drake was on. But Degrassi is like a a long running kind of series of different television shows. So it started in the 1980s. It's kind of, it's a show for teenagers focused on teenage issues. So, you know, they cover a wide range of things like um, bullying, mental health, eating disorders, teen pregnancy. I have only seen Degrassi Next Generation, which was then renamed just Degrassi. And the probably the summer that I was in, in between grade 10 and grade 11, Much Music or MTV Canada um, had this thing where every day they would play four episodes a day. And every episode is like two-parter. So then basically you're watching like but four episodes a day. Uh, so I watched like entire season. It's like the worst way to binge watch something where I'm still watching it on television, but I'm watching it really fast. Uh, so I watched like entire seasons over the span of a summer. Um, and I sort of watched it because I wanted, I was like, oh, I want to understand, I want to understand Canada better. So I watched this show uh, set in Toronto about Toronto. Um, so the show has a, wa- a long list of, queer characters. I wrote the list down, but I only wrote most of their first names down. So there's Paige, Zoe, Fiona, uh, Marco, and Imogen, and then someone who, and then Miles Hollingsworth III. And I I wrote down that entire name because I was like, I looked it up and then I was like, it almost sparked, like I had the sort of the physical sensation of a memory. And then I couldn't remember a single thing about the character, (laughs) even though I watched this entire show. Many of the queer characters who are on Degrassi the Next Generation, but obviously the closest one to my heart is Adam Torres. And, you know, he was made for this teen show. How it worked in the show is, you know, Adam was just a regular guy. And then there's an episode called My Body is a Cage based off of the Arcade Fire song. And, the, and this is the sort of like outing episode where. Adam gets outed and it's sort of the issue that covers, or sorry, it's the episode that covers transness. And I actually, for research for this episode, I was like, oh, I haven't seen this episode, you know, since I was like 15. I wonder what would, ha- what would happen if I watched it again? All of the episodes are available on YouTube. So if you would like to watch Degrassi, you can. So I watched um, My Body's a Cage I think I accidentally started with the second part, but I watched the episode and it was actually, I don't really know how to say this any better, but it was actually incredibly triggering. And it was just sort of wooden is maybe how I would describe it. So like the worst combination of two not very pleasant things. And then I was sort of interested in like, is it wooden because wooden and kind of using sort of like really weird language because this is a show for teenagers or is it is it like that because it came out in 2010 Hmm. and sort of like finding the balance between that i remember watching adam on tv and i think i was caught up enough that when he spoiler alert when adam dies in a car crash i think i was like i was watching like with the show at that point i wasn't like going back and having to see it Adam to me is a very, it's interesting because I think we want to think of representation as being helpful. And obviously it is. Like when I think back to being a teenager, you know, sitting in my parents' basement, 
and I remember watching Adam on TV, mm-hmm. I don't remember feeling a connection at that point in my life. I remember just being like, oh, that actress is the girl who was on Life with Derek. And why did they dress this character so poorly? His weird floppy hat is really weird. Rewatching it, it was interesting how now I like do feel a connection. And I guess we want representation to sort of open up something within us really often. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of, it was interesting to reflect on how it didn't do that for me at the time. You know, it wasn't like watching Adam on TV, you know, opened up this portal in my mind. And I was like, oh, I am that. Instead, it was sort of, I almost think it worked in reverse because there's an episode where there's a Battle of the Bands thing and there's a girl who thinks that he's really cute. Then at one point they're in a mall and they're making out. And earlier in the episode, he had used like a cucumber as a packer and like while they're making out it falls out of his pants Hmm. and i just remember like i can remember watching that and being like like almost like a certain kind of traumatized to being like that is so mortifying right oh my god and i feel like i don't i don't want to like make some claim like and then i became even more repressed because that's not really what happened but i think like seeing when you only see you know bad things happen yeah and not focusing specifically on, not necessarily when Adam, like when good things happen in his life, but specifically like trans joy. No, I think that's like a really good conversation to have. Like as you've been talking, I've been like racking my brain for the writer or the article that I read that made me think about this. Was the movie, is the movie called The Crying Game? Is that the movie that yes. has like the trans character? They talk about it in the, in the film Disclosure. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Maybe that's, that's what it is. That's what's, that's what's reminding me. Right. Okay. Oh my goodness. The Crying Game is a, a film released in 1992 that features a, a trans woman. And when it is like revealed, and she's played by a, a, a cis uh, man actor. And when it's revealed that she's trans in the movie, the the man she's like having sex with or or, or being intimate with uh, like is repulsed and like vomits, I think. In the film Disclosure, they were talking about how like, you know, that kind of representation is like, that's not like good representation. Like it's not going to help anyone who is like trans to see this awful depiction, like this depiction of being repulsed by this trans woman. Like that's not, that's not good. So there totally is like, I think good and bad representation. But yeah, I think that these conversations that we're having about like the movie, The Crying Game, or like the the character in Degrassi, uh, whose name I now forget already. Um, Adam Torres from Adam, Degrassi. Yes. Uh, yeah, kind of brings up the question like, so what is like the purpose of, of representation? I think I'm paraphrasing from a book I read. Um, representations can sort of be divvied up into two functions, maybe. I sound like I'm writing a poli sci paper. Either it can work to sort of like, I don't know, isn't I guess normalize is the word I'm looking for. Normalize or like show people outside of that group. So in the case that we're talking about, like uh, cisgendered uh, straight people, right? Like it can work to sort of like help them learn about um, queerness or transness and sort of like normalize our lives. And I think the other thing that it does the other thing that it can do is sort of like the way that we experienced 
one girl five gays is it sort of like shows shows us sort of like affirms us and affirms our lifestyles and affirms like the way we live by like showing us ourselves well i feel like that's sort of like the distinction between you know me- like media that is or like queer media or, or media that includes queer characters that's made for like straight people or like a general kind of audience compared with like media that includes straight or queer characters that's made for for queer people like i feel like that's a huge distinction right like i mean queer as folk for example or like one girl five gays i feel like their intended audience was probably not necessarily like you know white straight families with 2.5 kids in the suburbs it's interesting how major media companies have representation in their content and they're like look we did this for you do you like this we made this for you when it's like this isn't this you didn't like you made it maybe it was your intention to make this for queer people but it's still you know the same maybe sort of kind of stories that we are seeing and it's still the same sort of like normalizing for a cishet audience instead of you know showing the wide diversity of queer and trans experiences right like queer storylines on on mainstream television are usually going to be about like uh you know white men meeting and then getting married which is like this very sort of homonormative storyline which yeah completely sort of perpetuates yeah this cycle of you know homonormativity and um doesn't actually yeah represent the diversity of experiences yeah exactly now we're just uh just reading from like queer theory papers boring um no but no but not it's not boring at all and i I think that like (laughs) it kind of makes me think of the idea of like queer baiting um which is like the idea of using sort of queerness to or like the promise of queerness to like lure queer audiences in and then like not actually really delivering on that promise i guess so like uh killing eve i know there are some people who accuse it of queer baiting and like sort of insinuating that there was like going to be a queer sort of relationship between the two main characters and that didn't that didn't end up being the case or like more recently i've heard people talk about bridgerton and how like in the trailer for that on netflix there's like this sort of steamy gay sex scene so it kind of makes you think that there's going to be like a lot of queer stuff happening in the show but in reality i think the queer content is basically just that sex scene and like there's not, nothing else um and so you know, it like, I think it's it's sort of a product or it's a result of the fact that having queer content is now like not only economically viable for like television producers and stuff, but it's actually like economically beneficial. Like they will get more audiences if they include like queer storylines or queer characters. Like I know for myself personally, like, you know, Netflix puts out so many shows and I basically like won't watch a Netflix show unless there's a queer storyline in it, which is maybe maybe kind of silly, but um, so I feel like, yeah, it's then we're getting to this, you know, reality that people are almost exploiting representation for like, uh, for money, for capitalism. Yes. It's all comes back to capitalism. Yes. (laughs) Very true. Or it's like, it's like media execs have realized like, oh, um, gay people have money. They will pay for movies and TV. Especially white gay men, which is why there's like, yeah, this issue of, yeah, obviously lack of representation of like queer people of color and non cis people, etc. Yes, there is representation, but not representation of everyone, which we've already talked about. Okay. Do you have any sort of like contextless hot takes 
Mm. Not just like no context, but like <laughs> maybe not something we've specifically discussed that you just want to get off your chest. Well, okay, because I had a hot take written down, but I think I basically just said, like, I think that maybe that is my hot take, like what I just said, like that there is like, you know, because I think people often complain about like, oh, there's not enough queer representation or whatever. But I think my hot take is that there actually like is a lot of queer representation out there now, or at least like gay representation um, when it comes to, like representing white gays. And like, it's quite easy to, you know, just in doing research for this podcast, I came upon so many movies and like now on Netflix, there's so many like foreign films, especially that like tell like queer stories, but yeah, this like modern family kind of representation of queerness is like not enough. It doesn't cut it. We need sort of more nuanced representations of queer folks that don't sort of just cater to like a straight audience. You know, I, I think we could talk about different examples forever, so I won't like talk about it too much, but like uh, the show Pose, uh, I think is a really good example of that. I really liked it. I know that you maybe had a different kind of experience with it, but I really... That makes it sound like you're like, you're like, Thomas didn't like it. Sorry, I don't mean to call you out like that. I just know that you didn't finish the series. But I did like it. I liked it a lot. Okay, okay good. It lost a bit of steam for me personally. That's how I would say, that's how I would say my Fair, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, more shows like that. Uh, how about you? Hot takes. What are your hot takes? My Here's my biggest hot take. I'm nervous that this is a bad take that's 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 the thing about saying takes i've never said it's bad that's fine we said at the top that we might have some bad takes so it's okay yes that's true um kids in the hall it was um a sketch comedy show of five guys from ontario uh doing sketch comedy uh scott thompson is gay and then i believe all the rest of them are straight you know there is one uh gay guy and four straight guys and if you watch an episode of Kids in the Hall, they are constantly doing sketches where they are women. Multiple times an episode, they are, they're doing sketches where they're women. And I find that really bothersome. And I feel like I, you see this all the time in sketch comedy. If you want to have sketches with women in them, you should put women in your sketch comedy group. That's my take. Yeah. On specifically, specifically sketch comedy where people are always dressing up as women. Yeah. That's a good take. That's a spicy take. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think that the thing about, um, yeah, dressing up as women, all the, like, uh, or like the idea that, you know, if you want to have women characters in your sketch comedy thing, you should just hire women or work with women. Like, uh, that is not a spicy take. That is just like a, a true, like, huge, that's <laughs> basic uh, common sense, it seems. Um, I know that that's not actually the case. But, I mean, I, I, f- I feel like I maybe... I wish it was I, common sense. Yeah. I think I maybe feel... Okay, this is obviously very different. Different uh, context. But, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people who I hear, like, where they're like, love the, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire. What, what are your thoughts on Mrs. Doubtfire? I think the more wide conversation about comedy of men dressing up as women, that's a whole, you know, a wider, important discussion to have that I don't know that I can articulate as well. Yeah, and that's exactly like what I was going to talk about with Mrs. Doubtfire. Like, I just always feel a little bit weird about it where I'm like, this makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, you know, it can be used to perpetuate terrible ideas about trans people. Yeah. Go watch Disclosure. I think rounding out our episode, I know I've asked you this question before, so let's see if, if you have anything about it. Let's say, you know, 
you're hired as a major executive of a Canadian media company. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You have infinite money, infinite amount of resources. What is your like dream um, queer representation in Canadian media project? I would say thanks, but no thanks for this wonderful opportunity. I would rather give this opportunity to a queer creator of color to uh, do with it what they what they want. I know that's cheating, but <laughs> but yeah, I just feel like uh, right. And we didn't actually end up talking about Shit's Creek, but I feel like my main my main beef with Shit's Creek is that it's obviously very white, and like that's the that's the main beef that everybody kind of has has with it. Uh, and so I feel like that just speaks to how uh, yeah, there are people like me do not need to be in charge of uh, creating queer content. This doesn't have the right ring to it, but uh, one girl, five trans people. Yeah, I think a big thing is just cis people just don't know a lot about trans people. Obviously, that's a very like that's a not a hot take. That's just like such a wishy washy thing. And I think sometimes you know people have questions that they would want to ask trans people, uh, and for some reason they don't they don't have access to Google somehow. So I think that. One Girl, Five Gays was a good way to sort of like tell the wider public about just like, you know, the everyday, everyday things about gay people and sort of like all these more specific details um, about gay people. And I think I would love to see a project like that, but for trans people sort of more going into just, you know, the everyday lives of trans people, uh, you know, just talking about, talking about whatever, turning to the left, um, saying something, saying a compliment to the person on their left. I think that would be really, it has the potential to be very wholesome. As I said about, as I said about um, One Girl, Five Gays, very bold, mm. maybe. I like that. Mm-hmm. I, would watch, I would watch that. Thank you. Awesome. Well, with that, I think we're going to wrap things up here and uh, leave on a bit of a cliffhanger right so that our listeners can tune into the next episode which is part two of our conversation about queer representation in canadian film and television where we'll be talking with some experts who have perhaps some better takes if you'd like to keep up to date with all of uh, the shenanigans we have at how did we get queer you can follow us at hdwgq pod on twitter and you can follow the pigeon at the pigeon on twitter you can also go to the pigeon.ca where they have links to all these things yeah and i have been isaac Werman, your co-host special thanks to our producer olivia fava and our incredible editor colton madigan i've been thomas o'donnell talk to you next time 